to this week's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. Um, we're excited this week to welcome Stefania Barca, who will be uh, presenting her new book, Forces of Reproduction, which is out with Cambridge University Press in 2020. Um, so we will give it over to you, Stefania, to introduce us to the book. Thank you very much and thank you for the invitation and uh, especially let me uh, um, thank you for inviting me to take part in your book club even if this is not a book monograph properly speaking because uh, the text has a peculiar format for those of you who had a chance uh, to, um, to look at it. Uh, it's, uh, it's a short uh, 80 pages uh, um, essay, I would say, uh, that um, uh, falls um, under a sort of new, um, new sort of a publishing uh, experience that uh, some publishers uh, are now experimenting with uh, in terms of um, a scholarly communication in the sense of uh, making scholarly work um, available um, in a format that is not strictly uh, academic and um, and uh, it, you know with the idea of combining the the uh, features of of books and and uh, journal articles so. Um, yeah, with the idea of giving a comprehensive coverage of some of some key cutting edge um, issue or, or topic or, or, or provocative uh, thesis. Um, so my own uh, element comes, uh, so that's also why in, uh, you will find me uh, writing uh, this, saying this element rather than this book, because that's what the publisher wanted me to, how the publisher wanted me to describe the, um, the text. So um, this comes uh, from a series in environmental humanities that um, um, it's called Cambridge Elements in Environmental Humanities uh, that has been um, envisioned and it's been edited by uh, Louise Westling, uh, Serenella Jovino, and Timo Maran. Um, I believe mine is the first element of this series to be discussed here, if I'm not wrong. I think you will be discussing Timo Maran's book uh, shortly. So let me tell you that um, what, what a great experience has been for me to, to work with Louise and Serenella and Timo and how grateful I am to them for having put together this, this series. Um, writing an essay in uh, 30,000 words, like uh, putting uh, um, together a little more than three articles uh, and an introduction, uh, has been less easy than I imagined, I have to say, but uh, it has challenged me to, um, to do an exercise in, in uh, prioritizing uh, so to not overuse the, the space and the, and the reader's time and attention with, with the, the maybe less important details, but instead make uh, each page count towards the argument that I wanted to make. Um, I think the advantage of this is that the whole book can be read in one day. 
So this avoids the temptation of uh, skimming through the text, to which many of us are now drawn by lack of time. Uh, but it is not a light reading. It's, it weighs on you more than, uh, than you expect, I think. Um, in any case, this was a great opportunity for me to follow up on uh, some um, ideas, some, um, a number actually of, uh, of ideas that I was uh, uh, thinking about uh, in the past few years and specifically on uh, uh, following up on one article uh, that's called Telling the Right Story uh, that's published in uh, 20th anniversary uh, issue of the journal Environment and History, um, an issue where uh, there is also uh, an article by Dolly um, that um, in, in which article I was trying to um, say how an environmental history uh, slash environmental humanities uh, approach could, uh, could look like, uh, not generally speaking, but more specifically uh, talking about uh, thinking from my own research interest in um, the uh, environmental uh, uh, dimension of uh, the industrial age. So what we now call the Anthropocene. Um, and in that article, I was um, suggesting uh, this uh, concept, this idea of narrative justice as a contribution um, to the environmental humanities coming from uh, um, also uh, intersecting environmental history with environmental justice studies. Uh, but um, in a way that um, in a format within, with an approach that it's more properly uh, of the humanities. So relying on sources like um, fiction uh, literature uh, or, uh, or films, for example, uh, or poetry. And so um, uh, the, I, this is what I, I um, welcome the opportunity of doing with this with this short book, which uh, uh, in fact starts from and and uh, elaborates upon one uh, a documentary uh, film, which is called Toxic Amazonia, and um, and that tells the story of uh, of two um, uh, two peasants and uh, an environmental activists uh, from the Amazon um, who were uh, uh, defending protecting the forest uh, from um, timber companies and and from illegal uh, um, timber cutting and trafficking back in um, in two thousand. Uh, 11, they were uh, assassinated. Uh, they were part of a longer, a longer um, history uh, of, and sad history of, uh, of violence against um, environmental activists and uh, um, defenders, uh, forest defenders uh, in a number of places uh, that are um, um, let's say uh, we can consider like like commodity frontiers, no places where 
um, there, there are strong interests uh, towards um, uh, extracting uh, uh, resources. Um, and so, um, yeah, this, this I, I came to know about the stories through one of my PhD students uh, in, uh, in Coimbra, Felipe Milanese, um, and uh, who was the filmmaker doing the documentary he was um he had been lucky enough to uh, get to meet the two uh, people i'm uh, that uh, are uh, whose uh, stories uh, is told in the movies uh, claudio and maria uh, so he had some extraordinary uh, material that he had filmed uh, with them taking their testimonies about the death threats that they were receiving and also um, talking about the place where they lived. They lived in uh, one of those uh, protected areas that are um, called uh, uh, extractive reserves, in which the word extractive is uh, different from what we can imagine. It just means um, 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 a sustainable use of, uh, uh, of forest um, uh, resources. It's a sort of sustainable agroforestry. Uh, so these people make a living uh, by collecting, for example, the nuts, um, and uh, especially in the area where they live, they lived in a chestnut um, uh, area, a Brazil nut specifically. Uh, growth and they were uh, collect making a living out of collecting the, the, the nuts and processing them uh, in, um, um, yeah, in traditional ways. And uh, at the same time, these, these are, these are uh, protected areas where they are formally recognized by the Brazilian constitution um and uh, and so the, the 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 people who live in these areas are organized through um uh commoning um, associations uh that are specifically entrusted with the task of taking care of uh of the area so they not only they make a living out of sustainable agroforestry but they also take care of, uh, of the forest. And so that's what they were doing. They were uh, documenting and denouncing uh, illegal uh, timber trafficking in their, um, in their area. Uh, and that's why they were killed. So uh, this story made me think, at the same time, um, I was uh, being, um, um, I was, um, let's say, uh, being, being more and more involved in conversations around the, the Anthropocene uh, and um, uh, the, the, the board-joining literature that uh, the environmental humanities has produced around this concept in the last uh, decade. Um, so at some point I came to, uh, um, realized that there was a disconnection between uh, these conversations around the Anthropocene and the story of the Claudio and Maria. Uh, it seemed to me like their story wasn't taken into account, that that story didn't matter, uh, as if it didn't matter to, uh, to um, climate politics, no? to the understanding uh, of the climate crisis and the ecological crisis, uh, when in fact, all they were doing was uh, protecting the Amazon forest, which is 
so important to this planet's uh, climate. Uh, and not only that, of course. Uh, so basically, um, this, what, this is what gave me the idea of um, developing this uh, narrative justice um, approach to tell their story within, uh, as, as part, as embedded in the story of the Anthropocene. Um, and, um, and so this is why the book, look, it's, it's more like a provocation, an invitation to, uh, to rethink or rather to undo the Anthropocene grand narrative and uh, uh, doing that from a, a particular perspective that I adopt in the book, which is the eco-feminist perspective. Um, this is um, the, the eco-feminist approach is uh, it's very, it's a broad and differentiate um, perspective with a four decades of debate. Um, but uh, so let me tell you what it is to me, what kind of eco-feminism I, um, adopted in the book. Uh, to me, this is the work of disidentification from uh, what uh, the environmental philosopher Val Plum would call the master model of humanity or the master model of modernity, which is uh, um, a, a, an intersection of, of different uh, um, forms of, of domination and oppression, like heteropatriarchy, colonialism, capitalism, uh, militarism, extractivism, GDP growth as well. Uh, so this identification from this master model of modernity is necessary uh, because the master model works by systematically devaluing the, the sphere of reproduction, the, uh, what, what uh, uh, Titi Bhattacharya now calls life making, the, li the work of, li of life making. Uh, and at the same time, giving value to those forces and processes that are destroying life uh, on Earth. No? Um, so, ecofeminism is not uh, the belief that women are especially associated with nature, but precisely the critique of this belief, which is a belief which is deeply rooted in, in Western culture and which has oppressed women as well as uh, other subjects like the colonized and racialized people, all those, uh, the indigenous people, all those uh, people that were uh, uh, in that Western culture associated with nature and with the wild as opposed to culture and, uh, and the civilized. Uh, so my approach is not, I mean, ecofeminism is not just about gender and it, it's also about other things like, for example, uh, decolonizing. Uh, and uh, it's also about other forms of, um, um, of oppression. Um, in, in, in particularly in the book, I, um, I uh, make a, an argument that the ecological crisis is a result of uh, four forms of uh, four historical patterns of, um, of uh, oppression uh, intersecting with each other. Uh, colonialism, heteropatriarchy, the exploitation of labor and human supremacy over the rest of, uh, of nature, uh, or, or you can call it speciesism as well. 
uh, all these four converging towards the master model of modernity, which is what devalues and de depletes uh, the, the work of reproducing and, and caring for, for life, both human life and non-human life. Uh, this master model of, of modernity is what now the feminist political ecologist, which also has been a major influence in my work, calls the white manthropocene provocatively, no? to, to, make, uh, uh, to, to say that this anthropocene grand narrative that we have is uh, uh, in fact reflecting this master model. Uh, so, uh, as a consequence, uh, the book calls attention towards the labor of caring for and, uh, um, uh, yeah, caring for both human and, uh, and their, uh, their biophysical environment, so both human and non-human life, and suggests that this labor is what uh, uh, um, has kept the world alive uh, all along during the, the whole industrial uh, era, and uh, so it is truly vital to recognize the relevance of this work and, and also its um, uh, potentialities uh, in, the, in the current um, crisis. Um, so the book is, is, is really overloaded with multiple um, agendas. This is why it is so dense or, or it's, it's packed really with meanings. Um, but um, I, I wanted it to not only undo the hegemonic Anthropocene narrative, but also to do some other things that uh, were important to me. Um, and each of them was, of course, uh, had its complexities. But let me try and flesh out uh, some of these things, the, the most important. First of all, I wanted to speak to a long-standing tradition of uh, uh, ecofeminist uh, scholarship and its critique of historical materialism. And this explains the title, uh, Forces of Reproduction, so highlighting the historical agency and revolutionary potential of reproductive labor. Uh, this is uh, this concept of forces of reproduction had been provocatively formulated by a socialist ecofeminist scholar Mary Mellor in the 90s. I wanted to take this concept seriously because it seemed to me that it, it could do very important work. It can do very important work today. Um, but of course, this is not meant, it was not meant to deny the importance of productive forces uh, and particularly of industrial labor in the politics of climate change, because this is what I, in fact, what I do in my previous research in which I have written about the environmental agency of waged workers and their organizations in pushing for environmental regulation, environmental protection. Um, Etc. But here I wanted to highlight the importance of unwaged uh, and meta-industrial labor, following a concept by uh, the feminist scholar uh, Ariel Saleh, which is the labor of, uh, of those subjects who are not the blue-collar, uh, uh, mostly male uh, workers of industry, uh, but uh, are mostly black or indigenous and peasants and, and working-class women on all those subjects that um, uh, whose work has been uh, devalued, uh, systematically devalued in uh, in the in the capitalist industrial uh, modernity. 
Uh, and here I was responding to, um, uh, to uh, uh, an array of new uh, studies, uh, uh, literature that is joining in the field of um, historical materialism um, um, from the historical materialist tradition on the climate crisis. Um, we can call it uh, eco-Marxist scholarship that has been producing uh, uh, many, many uh, works uh, in the past decade on the Anthropocene, on the climate crisis, on climate and capitalism. Um, because these studies, for the greatest part, are still uh, largely disregarding feminist ecological thought and the uh, unwaged labor uh, as a historical uh, subject. So um, uh, I'm convinced uh, that the, the two perspectives, the historical materialist and the, and the eco-feminist, do better together, actually, interacting with each other. Um, but this is a, it's, it's a broader project that I am still pursuing and that might become clearer with the, um, my next book on which I'm already working now. So, um, yeah, so then, then another thing I wanted to do uh, with the, this book to do was to dialogue with scholars in gender studies. Uh, by suggesting that uh, um, the, the relevance of species also as a relevant category to, to take into account and pushing towards a post-humanist approach to intersectionality. So that's why in the book I, I, I suggest that this, these four uh, pathways, which is an, uh, of, of, um, of uh, causes of the ecological crisis, not just uh, gender, race, and class, but species as well, interacting with uh, the others. And um, it seemed to me that this possibility had been already opened uh, by the work of Val Plumwood, which I was mentioning before, uh, work that dates back to the 90s, but uh, really pioneering in this, in this sense. But, it, but also by other scholars, like, for example, the, the work of Donna Haraway. No? So, um, and also in very important ways, this same uh, kind of um, opening uh, has been um, developed in the Latin American uh, decolonial feminisms, indigenous feminism and, and community feminisms in the last uh, decade, which are also working on the intersections between different forms of, uh, of uh, human uh, oppression and uh, the oppression of uh, other species. Um, so my last point was about radical realism. So a third way between the, the, the capitalist realism uh, concept of um, Mark Fisher that I build upon in the, in the book by, uh, uh, yeah, by um, putting forward the, the idea of eco-capitalist realism and the utopian uh, thinking. So a third way that I think can be defined as a, as radical uh, realism, um, because um, you know, uh, in to me, the planetary boundaries framework and the sustainable development goals, uh, they represent. I criticize them in the in the first part of the book because I see them as forms of eco-capitalist realism. The idea that addressing climate change does not require to change the system but simply to find a safe operating space for it to continue the same system that we already have. 
Uh, Eco-capitalist realism tells us that there is no alternative to the master model of humanity. So it disregards all those who are oppressed by this model and, and limits the possibilities for political imagination and hope. Uh, in the, um, uh, I think there is, there is no space for people like Claudio and Maria in, in the eco-capitalist uh, realist um, imagination. So that's why I wanted to uh, invite to think of different possibilities for, for uh, human development that already exist. Are, these are not utopian um, uh, projects, but they, these are life projects that people in different people in different parts of the world are already um, uh, uh, living and in their lives and struggling for against uh, uh, a violent, um, uh, violent opposition, uh, like it was the, the, the case with, uh, with the Claudia Maria. So um, yeah, the, the radical realism I wanted to uh, um, convey with the book um, is an invitation to, look, to see the true causes, the deep causes of, uh, of climate change and, um, and go beyond simply um, the, the problem of carbon emissions, which is not the only problem that we are facing. Uh, so it's realist in the sense of um, combating the uh, obfuscation of, uh, of these uh, true deeper causes that are um, uh, underneath. And, and the, at the same time, it invites you to, um, to see uh, what um, uh, different possibilities are there for humanity that, uh, that we didn't uh, know or we didn't remember or we didn't think uh, they mattered for, uh, for our um, alternative ways of inhabiting the earth and uh, of being human. Um, yeah, so I think I would stop here now and uh, hear whatever um, you have to comments also, not just questions, also comments and feedbacks. Thank that's you. good. Thank you so much. Uh, and yeah, so that's a, that's a lot, many arguments and, and big arguments too going on for such a small book. So, so there's a couple of different things uh, I think we can talk about. And one is, of course, the, the format, uh, which is this, this short book format is one that's appeared now in particular last decade, I would say they got more and more common. Also, I mean, quite a lot of them now in the environmental humanities. Mm -hmm. uh, I wrote one myself, it was a 35,000 words. I recognize very well this, this feeling you had that it's not as easy as it, as it sounds. Um, I mean, I was, yeah, I, I can do this in four months. It's like, no, that did not happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you chose to, to, to really fill this book, like, okay, four arguments, like, mm -hmm go really, really big. So this could in a way fill a whole cycle of books, right? Like fleshing out those arguments. So, uh, so one thing I was wondering, could you say something about the, in a way, the trade-off in this format? What, what would happen if you, I mean, A, scale down the argument to a standard article, or if you scale it up to like a like full length, like the good old 700 page monograph, 
that that people used to have time to read in the good old days yeah good question who knows i mean <laughs> i would like to have that space maybe not 700 but maybe you know i i all the time while I was reading this, I was thinking, oh gosh, if I had 200 pages, I would be so happy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's the feeling that um, I had. I think that um, it would be a different book though, because uh, probably it would focus much more on, uh, um, probably on the story uh, of, uh, of the Claudia Maria. Uh, it would bring forward uh, much more the, the context, um, uh, make sense of the story in a full, I mean, it would be like a monograph. So what would be lost perhaps uh, would be the, the, the complexity and articulation of the argument that I make in this short book, paradoxically, no? uh, if you think so. But um, yeah, um, remaining on, you know, on the, on the, I will, I don't want to say on the, um, on the outskirts, but, you know, not going too deep into each thing is also a way, it also allows you to, um, to make an, um, a more complete argument that, that uh, of course, uh, it's more like a provocation. I, I like to think it like that. It's, uh, it, it's something that wants to open new uh, ways of, uh, of looking at things uh, and inviting, giving you just, you know, hints on, on what could it look like if we um, really looked at the Anthropocene from this different perspective. And then, and then of course, I didn't want to lose track of, of the story that was so important for, to me um, and so that's why I am. Um, I do, um, um, you know, talk about it in the different in the in in certain chapters. In not all, uh, not 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 the whole book, but in the two final chapters, the one on class and the one on species. I I talk more uh, about the, the 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 story itself and its relevance, its significance. Um, but of course, much more. I could have gone much more in that. But I think there is uh, something to this uh, style as well. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different kind of opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you're, you're pointing to something really important there in this, this relationship between story and argument that you, I think you find a lot of, of, especially in history, really good storytellers who don't necessarily have a big argument. And I also think you find a lot of books out there with big arguments that don't really have the stories that could really carry them. So, so finding the space for that is, is quite tricky though. But so I wanted to just ask you, you used the concept uh, in the beginning and I think you came back to it uh, so much, this, this idea of narrative justice. Um, how does this relate to this, these ideas of, of stories? I mean, narratives and stories and so on. Could you say a little bit more about this concept? Yes. Um, well, first of all, um, let me uh, mention my, uh, my sources of inspiration. I think that uh, it's important to, uh, I recognize 
my work within uh, some other um, other work that has been done also in the same direction and i'm thinking here specifically of uh, donna houston who has worked um, with um, um, native american uh, storytelling about uh, uranium mining and other kinds of um, uh, industrial um, uh, toxicity in um, in their um, um, in their history uh, and uh, as a way of making the same argument a very similar very similar argument um, about how um, storytelling has this power of uh, of giving us a different uh, narrative allowing us to 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 build a different narrative uh, if taken seriously in the sense that um, um, if we consider um, these stories as um, uh, the, the, the hidden, what is normally invisible no? in, the, in the grand narrative uh, of, for example, of the Anthropocene. In my case, I was also, um, my, my point of, uh, my target of polemic, let's say, is the narrative of modern economic growth, because this is the narrative which I have been uh, educated and then born and raised within. In, in my since the time of my PhD in economic history. And uh, that's a narrative that is very much uh, still, uh, it has kept increasingly um, the same, same story, same narrative for a very long time. Um, and sleeping, sleepwalking, uh, walking through the ecological and the climate crisis without really taking it seriously no and this is a grand narrative that is uh, also very much um, um underlying the the anthropocene narrative and that this is why i, I criticize the, the welcome to the anthropocene um, uh, video the storyline the un video that uh, it really encapsulates incorporates that narrative in which you don't see what uh, the, the 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 question of narrative justice is what is it that we don't see we cannot see in uh, in those uh, kinds of um, of grand narratives and uh, prog or progressive narratives you could call them uh, and to me it was very really clear that, uh, that we don't see the claudios and marias of of the world those uh, who have um, uh, you know, um, kept the Amazon forest uh, uh, alive and to, to whom we owe it. So yeah, to me, uh, narrative justice is exactly about making visible what is uh, hidden um, in, the, in, the hegemonic, uh, in the hegemonic narratives and specifically the, the, the one uh, regarding uh, uh, the modern modern growth, the modern uh, industrial area. Yeah. So we have a question now in the chat from uh, Remy here. So uh, we'd like to know whether you're discussing the works and life of even Illich in your book uh, or in your research in general then. So what do you think about that? Hmm. Uh, short answer, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Is uh, Illich has is, is not been one of my main um, sources of inspiration. Of course, I am. I know uh, about his work, and I think it's uh, of course a very important work. 
but I, um, you know, you, you have to make choices. There are so many important and interesting things uh, out there. And uh, in my case, I think that my choice definitely goes with um, the eco-feminist uh, critique of, of modern um, of modernity. So, which is not that different from Illich's. Uh, I think um, what, uh, what the eco-feminist um, approach allows you to do is to uh, connect the critique of, uh, of moder modern industrialism with the critique of patriarchy. And this is very important. And I think it's, uh, it's really key to understand what we are facing here. So I was wondering if you could say a bit more about care and its relationship to reproduction then as you see it in the book, because there were several times in your introduction that you mentioned care and caring for the earth. And so I was wondering how you see those in relation to each other. Yes, thanks Dolly. That's a good question because uh, I think it's under theorized uh, actually um, in the book. I, I often use the two terms as uh, synonymous as uh, even if they are not. Uh, entirely, at least. So um, the, I, the reason I called the book Forces of Reproduction, it's because I wanted to, um, you know, criticize, but um, actually expand the, the, the historical materialist approach. So it was important for me to, um, you know, to do that. Uh, but at the same time, the ecofeminist approach is critical of the dualism between production and reproduction, because, of course, a lot of reproductive work is productive. Think of uh, uh, giving birth, for example. Now you are producing uh, human beings uh, and even uh, nurturing them and, uh, and raising them is a form of production. Um, but not only that, of course, for example, think, for example, of food production, uh, non-industrial food like subsistence farming or agroecology. Um, it's, they are even even the work that Claudia and Maria were doing with the, the Brazil nuts, they were producing things out of uh, uh, of um, the, the, the even even though they were not cultivating the land. No because it was an agroforestry project. They, was, they were collectors, you would call them collectors, but still they were, they were uh, producing a, a, a variety of, uh, of things. Um, so this distinction is actually problematic. It's a, it's a dualistic distinction that uh, is embedded within the political economy, um, thinking and, and, and language and which must be really um, challenged. Uh, whereas care uh, is a more, it's, it's a clear uh, concept in the sense that uh, uh, it really um, uh, differentiates from uh, um, industrial work or, or uh, uh, work that is um, producing uh, um, for, for the market, no? Uh, care is, uh, is a work that is, uh, um, uh, producing use values, so uh, it's, uh, it's mostly. Then, of course, uh, also care can be uh, somehow uh, can become a sort of um, can be marketized. No, can become some. Uh, so we we also have um, 
uh, waged uh, care work that um, is increasingly with privatization of public services has become increasingly becoming uh, sort of uh, incorporated, subsumed, uh, the Marxist would say, within uh, um, yeah, the, the capitalist uh, economy. So in both cases, uh, you see, uh, there, there are um, uh, different kinds of struggles uh, going on no? to resist these forms of appropriation and uh, uh, subsumption and um, uh, yeah, um, expropriation of, of the care work. Uh, but um, to me, what matters um, to me in the book is the, is the unwaged care work that is the most invisible of all. Uh, now with the pandemic, we are uh, talking a lot about uh, about healthcare workers, for example, rightly so, because of course uh, we realize now how essential their work is uh, and undervalued. Um, but their work is somehow valued through the wage system. But I wanted to call attention towards all the, that care work, which is really absolutely uh, not valued or devalued and not considered, not even considered as work. And uh, I was inspired here both by the work of Ariel Saleh with the, this concept of meta-industrial work, um, and also by Carolyn Merchant with her um, uh, work on earth care. She actually uh, invented this concept of earth care to, meaning, to mean exactly uh, the, the work of taking care of the biophysical environment of non-human life, of the web of life as inherently connected to human life. So not as a form of um, uh, conservation for the sake of it, which is of course also uh, another important thing, but uh, earth care more re re recalls the idea that people uh, who, who, who do it, it's because uh, they see their own lives, their own existence dependent on, interdependent with uh, non-human nature. And that was the case of, of Zecadio and Maria. They saw themselves as part of the forest um, that, that they, where they lived, as uh, members of the same community. They didn't really distinct, make, make big distinctions between their lives and the life uh, of the trees and the forest that were, were uh, important to them. So that for me is, um, is a very clear example of earth care. So we have another question from uh, Mauritz. Thank you. Uh, I have a question about the, um, the, the concept of, of, of the Anthropocene, which, which you criticize a certain version of it. Um, and what, what I find intriguing about the discussion of the concept is that certain fields are way more engaged or frustrated, whatever you may call it, with it than others. So uh, the sciences and engineering is much less busy with the concept itself, I would say, uh, which is problematic perhaps, but as an observation, whereas the humanities I mean, you can quote me on this, are totally obsessed with the concept. And, and they, I would say that much in the environmental humanities produces this modernistic view of the Anthropocene, right? It's the culmination of all evil and, and whatever, which is, I think is interesting how the concept is being used. And for that, I think it's totally useful that you 
give a, a different perspective on it because I think it's problematic what's happening in the humanities itself with the concept. Mm -hmm. Do you recognize that? Do you deal with that? Yes, um, I agree with you that um, there has been a lot of writing in the environmental humanities that has, um, even though as um, uh, critical, but uh, that still uh, he has retained this idea of uh, uh, of Anthropocene as um, um, a universal representative representation of the Anthropos. No. Uh, so other things have been criticized, um, other limitations of the concept, but not this. And then, and this this is what I find most problematic. That there has been also um, much. Um, I mean, there have there have, there has been. I mean, we have been talking about this anthropocene concept for for the for at least ten years now. So a lot has been written about it, and I don't pretend to have uh, um, uh, a you know, an, an overview of everything that has been said. I'm, I'm pretty sure there is a, a lot of critical also literature out there. And uh, I know for a fact that, for example, in related fields like political ecology uh, or environmental justice, uh, there has been a lot of uh, um, criticizing uh, of um, the limits of the Anthropocene concepts itself. So that's why I decided that th this was a tricky, um, but it took me a few months only to realize that, <laughs> that I wasn't uh, going to engage with the whole conversation around the Anthropocene in the environmental humanity. That's impossible. So what I wanted to do is actually to engage in a conversation with what I call the hegemonic um, narrative, which is not a scholarly narrative, it's more like uh, um, a governance discourse, and, and, and it's the, the discourse of, that, of the Anthropocene, the vision of the Anthropocene that the United Nations have adopted at the Rio Plus 20 Summit, uh, and that comes from um, a sort of intersection between uh, scientific uh, meta-narratives, uh, big data. No, if you watch the video, uh, "Welcome to the Anthropocene," that's what you get. No, this I, this uh, feeling that there is a lot of data and uh, uh, that are um, elab elaborated into one very short uh, three minutes narrative. No. Uh, and so, of course, uh, uh, necessarily in a very reductive uh, uh, way, but I wanted to engage with that because that um, is performative. It's performing the, the kind of um, climate politics that I find uh, problematic. So that's why the, the subtitle of the book, it's Notes for a Counter-Hegemonic Anthropocene. Um, because I think that this counter-hegemonic uh, Anthropocene is already here. It's been, it's been already performed and enacted by, by a, a whole lot of different, uh, not only individuals, but organizations and social movements, the climate justice movements that are already uh, you know, um, producing a, a, an alternative uh, um, idea of, of what the Anthropocene is all about. So, so I wanted to give visibility to, to that. So we have another question from Sebastian. So hi, 
Hi, Stefania. Thank you so much for the uh, very inspiring talk. Um, I think we have a lot of uh, similarities in, in our uh, work. So I just, um, I don't know if it's a, a common and it has been touched a bit upon, but but I'm also engaging in the work of um, Belle Plumwood, although I am more interested in the concept of um, shadow places. Um, but actually, I, wa I want to talk a bit about uh, Mark Fisher because Mark Fisher has been really... Uh, a muse for me uh, uh, and inspiration for me uh, as an academic. And um, you mentioned you uses his concept of capital realism, you know, the, the paraphrasing of that it's uh, easier to, uh, to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Um, but actually what, what I want your, your thoughts about um, is that so, so capitalist realism is, is sort of his, his uh, smash hit. Um, and it's also quite, a short book. So did you also look for inspiration in uh, Mark's very vivid, elegant uh, way of describing this complex uh, entity? Um, did you have like the same kind of thoughts where you would kind of, where you would compare um, your book, which is also fairly short as I, as I understand, and, and Mark's uh, book? Well, thanks for the question. I am truly flattered that you think of my book as comparable to Mark Fisher's book. Uh, I don't think so. I think his book is, has been really uh, influential and, and uh, really important for, for so many people uh, that, um, yeah, I mean, I wish <laughs> I could reach that. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I didn't go very much in depth into his, uh, his own uh, um, elaboration on, on capitalist realism. Uh, I was just, um, uh, let's say, uh, perusing um, his intuition uh, because it seemed to me that it, it very much, I mean, um, he had this, uh, this um, he was referring to this concept to uh, a different epoch, no? the era of the fall of the Soviet Union, the, 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 the failure of the socialist, uh, uh, so-called uh, real socialism uh, project. And so this, the, the, the Thatcherism, no, the, 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 the concept of there is no alternative and, and how all that has been uh, heavy on, uh, on uh, his generation, which is also my generation some, uh, and, um, and, and the following generations in the sense that it has um, make us, uh, made us um, live in this, in this pervading atmosphere of um, um, lack of the possibilities, lack of alternative possibilities for our existence. No, but, uh, but I, what I wanted to do is to show that now we, uh, with, the, with, the, uh, with the planetary boundaries, uh, sustainable development goals and all this whole uh, uh, climate negotiations um, and this whole um, eco-modernist, uh, um, let's say, um, era which we are now, which is different from the, the period in which, uh, of which he was referring to. This is a new era. This is a new, the, 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 the era in which climate change has become really the, the uh, unavoidable uh, no, um, problem. Uh, but still, 
um, capitalist realism is still working, no? in the sense that it's still limiting our imagination of uh, the, the possibilities of imagining uh, different modes of humanity. And um, here it was important for me also one very, very inspirational uh, point that Val Plum would made. Uh, we will go on in a different mode of humanity or not at all. That's what she said. And, um, and so I was thinking, yeah, how can we think of a different mode of humanity within this, you know, realist atmosphere? But let me clarify something that um, I think the problem is not realism in itself. Um, because there are different kinds of realism. That's why I, I talk about radical realism, no? Uh, because um, I don't want to talk, and that's also why I don't want to talk about utopian thinking. Um, so I think that here uh, the point is to, to overcome the denial mechanisms that make for, for uh, um, not only capitalist realism, but the economic, the, the ecological crisis uh, itself. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, and, and these are the, 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 the ways in which we, uh, we only see the climate crisis as a problem of carbon emissions without looking at what is underneath, no? And what is underneath to me are different kinds of, um, so, I, so I see different kinds of realism. For example, I see heteropatriarchal realism, no? The discourse that there are only two sexes and they are uh, opposite and radically different and each corresponds to a gender. This is sort of, sort of realism, no? Uh, or class realism. So the idea that um, social inequalities are unavoidable, a kind of natural, and that um, wealth cannot be redistributed, it can only grow, be grown. And, uh, and so uh, the only way to lift people out of poverty is to make the economy grow and not uh, rethinking the system, the economic system or redistributing wealth. This is also a form of realism that I think it's uh, these all these forms of realism are important to uh, you know they, they uh, underlay the processes which led us to uh, the ecological crisis or or, or for example think of uh, uh, what we could understand as uh, species realism no or, or human supremacist realism the the, the idea that there, there there are two different separated identities the human and the non-human no so the modernist uh, belief that uh, human development is only uh, can only happen by um, dominating nature or mastering uh, non-human nature, etc. So these are all uh, deep ingrained beliefs uh, no, that, that people carry with them in common sense understanding of reality and, um, and that science itself tells us that these, not only social sciences, but also the natural sciences now tell us that these dualistic uh, visions of reality are actually uh, untrue <laughs> or you know more, the reality is much more complex than that so right. um, yeah. so we're running out of time now but i thought oh, we'd, we'd, we'd sneak in one last question uh from sachiko and then we have uh, a brief answer to that so thanks for letting me ask my question uh so hello stefania i'm a phd student at Uppsala university so i'm 
uh, looking forward to having you uh, in Uppsala. I've heard that you're coming. Um, you. uh, so I um, wanted to go back to this question about uh, you critiquing, um, uh, specifically I want to focus on the planetary boundaries because sustainable development goals, I can totally agree with you that it's, it's not very radical and um, it, it's, it still has all these tensions between, for example, having economic growth as a goal or it's having all these other goals. But the reason I wanted to ask you about the planetary boundaries is because I was not really seeing it in that critical light uh, towards that framework. And also uh, with Kate Raworth's um, addition of having the social uh, foundations in that framework. So I wanted to kind of bring that, uh, maybe it becomes a little bit bigger question. The reason I like planetary boundaries and this donut uh, framework as well is that it's so kind of, uh, perhaps this is the problem, but it's so easier to think in a policy or um, apply it in that way in the mainstream. So I wanted to kind of ask you, how do you see the tension where there is this kind of call for radical urgency uh, towards climate action and all this environmental degradation on one hand, and so you want to push through these things uh, at the policy level, but then, uh, so, so what do you think about that? Thanks for, uh, very much for the question. Uh, so uh, trying to be, uh, to take my answer in uh, one or two minutes, <laughs> let me just, because this is a big question, but let me just say, first of all, I love the work of uh, Kate Roworth and the donut economy. So it's not like, uh, I, I don't think that is uh, something that we should easily discard. It's important work. Uh, what I criticize about the planetary boundaries is the fact that it's not um, 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 addressing the kinds of um, uh, injustice and inequalities that I see as uh, really embedded within the, the planetary crisis. So uh, the, the planetary boundaries are um, basically are, are telling us that that we are uh, the, this um, this um, model of uh, of modernity um, in modern economic growth and industrial growth is, uh, is still maintained as uh, as the best that humanity has produced no because uh, it has raised uh, um, humanity lifted the most of humanity out of poverty which is not even true but still it's it's still retained as the best possible system. So the, all the problem is to find the safe operating space for this system to continue. So that's what I find problematic. Um, because of course, that's a very North centric uh, um, uh, perspective. But uh, the climate justice movement is telling us otherwise, uh, that people are telling us that uh, the system uh, um, you know, uh, as, um, is detrimental to their uh, different life projects. And not everybody wants to become this uh, anthropos that we are talking about, even, even if they are being sold the anthropos as the, the you know, the most uh, uh, advanced possibility for, uh, for, for them to become truly human. So uh, I don't see this kind of problematics uh, in the, so I think the planetary boundaries and especially the donut economy is uh, 
the best you can get from that kind of thinking. So, uh, but I, I think it's important to, you know, push them a little bit uh, um, or, or at least problematize them, at least that, because that, 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 that there is important. Problematizing also makes important, uh, important work. Thank you, Stefania. Uh, so there were some, yeah, really big questions that came up there and really big comments that kind of hard to, to fit and contain in the uh, format of this book talk, which I think does justice to your book in a way too. Uh, it sounds like there's some really big things uh, there. Thank you for coming on. Thanks everybody for, uh, for your big questions. Big questions uh, make uh, uh, people uh, evolve. So.